We're the Inspire podcast. We're dedicated to bringing you the latest research in medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine and everything in between from both students and academics in a language everyone can understand. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Natasha and Ellie. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Inspire Journal Podcast to stay up to date. Visit the journal's website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk to access original research and articles from students or find out about how you can get more involved. In this episode, we were joined with Dr. Edwards, who is currently a lecturer in biomedical science at Peninsula Medical School in Plymouth. We had an interesting discussion surrounding the relationship between bacteria and pollutants and if they can break, break pollutants down. We also discussed the importance of medical education research and top tips for getting into PhDs, even in these difficult times. Today, we are absolutely delighted to have Dr. James Edwards with us today. Uh, Dr. Edwards is currently a lecturer in biomedical science at Peninsula Medical School in Plymouth. He has a broad research background, both in industry and academia. This ranges from laboratory research to, more currently, medical education research. Dr. Edwards has also used a blend of teaching of approaches, which includes a YouTube channel. So, hello, Dr. Edwards. Hi, hi. Yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Episode number two. I was saying, saying, saying just before, actually, it's nice. To, I, I listened to the first episode and was kind of there thinking, oh, there's loads of different software approaches I, I'd recommend to people, but... That was last episode, but um, yeah, definitely would recommend nextstrain.org if people are interested in software to allow you to track evolution of virus in real time, particularly SARS-CoV-2. So check that out. How does that work? So it's a repository of genome sequences. So the UK has kind of really led the world in sequencing different clinical samples of SARS-CoV-2. So this is a repository where all those samples get uploaded. And then the, the website that you can go onto is really the sort of front end of the software, which kind of behind the scenes allows you to sort of visualize the, the evolutionary relationships of all the different uh, samples. So you can, it, it's kind of useful from an academic point of view, so you can track the evolution of the virus, but actually from a kind of a contact tracing point of view, when a sample appears, they can sequence it. And then you can say, well, actually this belongs to this particular lineage and maybe you know, this maybe indicates that someone's travelled from a particular part of the world. So it's, it's wow, kind of. Um, that's really yeah, cool. I think it, I think I think it's yeah, it's kind of an area of of sort of infectious diseases, which I think will be certainly in the next twenty years will be transformed in your careers. Or, or you know, the, the the impact of genomics technologies. Or, I was going to say, do you think they do they do that with other diseases then, like antibiotic resistance and resistant bacteria? Can you sort of like track the evolution and then track the spread and use it to predict? Yeah, I think that's... Can you use it as a predictive tool? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the plan. I mean, the, the sort of dream with all these kind of point of care diagnostics is that, you know, someone's unwell or you've got, you know, an animal that's unwell and you don't know if it's a bacterial or viral infection, so you can take a sample sequence the stuff that's there and you can say oh you know the presence of you've got a particular pathogen is there which shouldn't be there so maybe this is the cause of agent and then if you take it on a step further then you can say well actually and by the way the following antibiotic resistant genes are there so therefore the following drugs are therefore unsuitable to be prescribed it's been yeah it's been it was used uh, for the for tracking like the ebola uh, outbreaks from where it's still going on isn't it but but in west africa a few years ago so they they kind of if you look at it and you and you go on to the next strain click on uh, Ebola, it actually kind of, you, they've animated it. So you can see that the, the virus hop from country to country, region to region. It's it's kind of a real tour de force in kind of um, data visualization and, and application of genomics and all sorts of cool stories of uh, people flying samples by drone and on the drone, the samples being sequenced on its way. And it's it kind of, um, I don't know, sounds like Elon Musk kind of got involved in it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> So um, let's begin with, can you give us a quick summary as to kind of your journey from biomedical science to research to lecturer now at Peninsula? So, yeah, sure. So I, I did, my, my background is, I started off with a degree in medical microbiology. Um, at the time, I really wanted to be a healthcare scientist. So I was really interested in infectious disease uh, and did a four-year degree. So the four-year degree included a year working actually for a pharmaceutical company. 
the first couple of years, yeah, I, I enjoyed the content, but didn't particularly enjoy the lab stuff. So I, I didn't really enjoy the research side of things. Uh, so what would happen would be, you know, for any bioscience students listening, what would basically happen is you, you turn up to the lab, all the lab technicians have all prepared all the reagents, you turn up, you follow a protocol, you generate a bunch of random numbers, and then you spend the next week or two stressing about how those random numbers can possibly you know, be written up into a lab report. Uh, and then with your friends, you stress about how that's all going to be written up into some sort of coherent thing, which you can then submit for your, to your tutor for grading and all that kind of stuff. And you know, this kind of went through week to week to week to week. And I just thought, ah, I'm not really that interested in research. Thanks. I'll, I'll go and you know become a healthcare scientist. Basically, yeah, I did a year in industry, and and that was um, that was amazing. And I, and I, you know, I think one of the things that I, I really took from it was it was the fact that you have ownership over your uh, research. You know, I, I wasn't just kind of following a protocol on a bit of paper. That I was actually coming up with those ideas, sort of following a protocol that I'd made, generating my own data, and then troubleshooting stuff. And it, and I loved it. And that was really kind of an amazing. Um, experience and and the, the work I was doing was relevant. It was kind of they weren't sort of make believe projects. It was kind of live stuff that they really needed, and and that was that was kind of fantastic. And it was it was kind of less medical microbiology and more kind of microbial biotechnology. So kind of applied micro, kind of looking at useful natural products, enzymes from from different uh, microorganisms. Um, and, and, and that was fantastic. And then, and then, like with a lot of bioscience degrees, I did a, a my final year involved a research project as well. But I'd already decided I kind of really wanted to do a research degree. Um, and just on the back of that, did a PhD. Um, and I can I can kind of give some some tips about how I got along with that. Uh, and then, as is often the case, I did a, a four year PhD, which is the kind of standard length of time in the UK. Uh, and then did a, a, what's called a postdoc on top of that, so a, a postdoctoral research fellowship. So that's essentially like a paid contract where you're paid to do a piece of research. Um, and this is all done at the University of York. Um, and then from there, I I kind of remember, it's one of those sort of defining moments in my life. I remember this period about 10 years ago, and I remember being in the lab with undergraduate project students. And I thought to myself, I'm not particularly enjoying my own research anymore, but I am enjoying training and supervising the students. And on the basis of that, I, um, yeah, got a, got a teaching fellow job uh, at, also at the same university. So that was, um, yeah, that's that's basically my my journey from, from University of Surrey to University of York and, and Plymouth from there. Um, how did you find the sort of transition from being a sort of student, being a PhD student, to to leading research? Is that sort of what the um, postdoc prepares you for? So you're going from being a PhD student to then being a leader of teaching other students and, and choosing your own research direction, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, you, you kind of learn by just being in that environment. So um yeah this is a good question because to some degree you know these sort of conversations are kind of ongoing with a lot of phd students and postdocs because uh they you know there there is a lot more that, that could be done to better prepare people it, it feels very much like a conveyor belt you go in a degree you do a phd you do your postdoc then you fall off the other end and then the, and then you know along the way you sort of feel like i really should be you know what do I, what am i going to do at the end of all this conveyor belt um I suppose I was a bit fortunate because I decided along the way that I, you know, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And that was kind of get a, a teaching and scholarship job somewhere. Uh, and I was very lucky when when Plymouth advertised when they set up their medical school. Yeah. So if I had to describe it, a PhD is basically like a training program. Uh, you train to set up and interpret your own experiments and also troubleshoot your own experiments and you learn to kind of interpret that data and present it along the way and there's a whole bunch of other transferable skills i'm not doing it justice in any way and then a postdoc is you know you can kind of think about your phd is you make all your mistakes and the postdoc you kind of learn from those mistakes and you're there to generate data and get papers out really but but along the way you just kind of do a load of other stuff and that other stuff can often include teaching you know quite often uh labs will have project students that will go into them so the the pr so the principal investigator of that lab will often run and, and offer up undergraduate projects just because you know it's a university and then there'll be a sort of an expectation that the phd students and postdocs will just be the people that they'll be the kind of go-to for 
questions and, and all that kind of stuff. It was it, it can be incredibly demanding, particularly if you're you've got a busy lab, you've got your own stuff to be getting on with, and then there's half a dozen students clamoring for your for your for your attention. And it's you know, it would not be un, it would you know thinking back, it would not be uncommon for me to spend nine to five supervising undergraduate students, and then at five o'clock. Now it's time for my own research, <laughs> you know. So it it can be it can be you know at certain busy points of the year it was it was pretty demanding. Um, so yeah, that that's 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 it. You you sort of learn by doing. You don't really get a huge amount of training along the way. So my okay. sort of question was like, I think your honesty about not enjoying research at the very beginning may mean that a lot of students understand that feeling and or currently going through that feeling. I guess what would be your advice if a student isn't enjoying their research project? um i found you know if, if you're really struggling sometimes taking taking a step back and explaining it to people seeing the relevance of all that stuff you know i think sometimes it is easy to get caught up in the day-to-day yeah the monotony i think sometimes people it takes time to understand that particularly the kind of lab-based stuff can be incredibly slow and boring and you know when you describe it you know my job for several years involved moving microliters of colorless fluid from one test tube to the next I mean, that was literally my job. Uh, and when you boil it down, that you just think you start to seriously question your own life choices. But actually, the greater scheme of things, it it is amazing. You, you kind of you kind of learn to, I suppose, you build up a sort of camaraderie with with friends. You know, you sort of you sort of learn that it's all part of a kind of a a greater goal. If you like, you know that it's not forever. Um, you, you you do know that. You know, again, I, I would recommend there should always be support available if you're really struggling if you really you can't see the point of why you're doing various things i think they're the they're the times where you need to sort of take a step back and and kind of take some take some advice because it is easy to get very caught up in your own thing to the point where you're banging your head against the brick wall and all it takes is sometimes a conversation with someone to say stop what you're doing and then switch it up and do go into something else but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the early, early course, um, you know, I mean, I teach on an medicine course and yeah, lots of students have said to me in the past, yeah, I don't particularly enjoy research. And that's because a lot of the time, particularly early on, you're, you're sort of learning those skills. You're sort of doing the, you know, I hate to say it, but you're sort of ticking those boxes of how do you, can you do blank, tick, can you do this, tick. You don't unfortunately really have many opportunities to kind of say, here's some time you know ask a question and go ahead and answer yeah. it um it would actually be quite nice to be able to do that more but i mean as you know when you've got a million subjects to shove in and there's always a demand for you know have we covered this topic in medicine yet no right let's shove it in somewhere you know it's, there's always about 100 other things that can go in at some point and then and then you say do you feel you've had enough teaching on the following topics and everyone always says no <laughs> so there's there's always there's always 100 things to add in and then you know so it's just how, how do you how do you give the people that time and space? There's a huge amount of creativity, I think, involved in scientific research. You have to be quite, it's not really a sort of tick box exercise, is it? And that's the fun bit is that is coming up with the questions and finding answers to stuff no one's asked before. So it must be really hard, I suppose, on degrees like medical degrees and biology degrees where you are just trying to, as an undergraduate, tick the boxes and learn the skills. So I can really sympathise with the fact that it must be I suppose, yeah, quite dull if you're doing someone else's research project or working with someone else's data that you're not necessarily super interested in. It's not necessarily novel all the time. Yeah. Um, on our research project um, for my intercalated year, it was sort of what you described, you were given a block of time. And some people did go and help other people with uh, like other academics with their projects. But um, I chose to sort of like think, okay, I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to answer it. And that's what made me fall in love with research. Like I loved it. Um, that three months of just being able to really explore. I think, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in research is that whole idea of ex- expanding your lateral thinking. So instead of thinking how everyone else is thinking, you've got to look at a question and come at from a different angle. And having to face yeah. the challenges that poses is quite interesting. And I, and I, I would, I would kind of I mean, what, what you're saying there about kind of it does require creativity, and to be creative requires space and time to kind of to be creative. But also, I think you know certainly the projects along the way. What I've learned, and I, it's only in the last few years that the really the penny has dropped that the projects that you're that are yours that you have ownership over that are your idea they're the ones that you obviously 
have meaning for you and they're the ones that you're going to put a bit of extra effort in and they're the ones that when the going gets tough you you're going to kind of see it through and and i think yeah early on when you're you know you're, you're doing someone else's stuff because you've got to do it as part of fulfilling a degree it can be tough and it can be boring and it can be like oh i don't really want to be doing this to be honest but you know i think as long as you you kind of see the the bigger the longer term goal and and again yeah if you're the sort of person that kind of likes asking those sorts of questions and and um you know again just just kind of asking the, the what if and and how does this work and why is it done this way type of question and i think that's that's a really healthy thing to be asking definitely i guess it would be good to um get a little bit of understanding of what sort of research projects you have been involved with over the years or maybe just one that you think was really poignant to you yeah of course um yeah, I mean, my my early my, so my PhD project was quite a cool one. So I I kind of went through a like I said from my year in industry, I became quite interested in applied microbiology. So I basically I, I just started writing to loads of supervisors. Potentially, I didn't wait for anything to be advertised. I just wrote to people who was interested. You know, I was interested in their research and just said, "Do you have space in your lab?" And nine out of ten of them turned around and said, "No, thank you very much, but thanks for your email." But then a couple of them turned around and said, actually, yeah, I do have a space of coming available. Would you fancy coming for an interview? And so I, to cut a long story short, I went to work for a professor at the University of York, and we were looking at bacteria that break down man-made pollutants. Uh, specifically, we looked at bacteria that grow on high explosives, which sounds kind of random, but actually explosives are dangerous not just because they go bang, but because they're um, quite toxic. So... TNT, for example, uh, trinitrotoluene is quite carcinogenic. Um, munition factory workers in the First World War were called canaries because they all developed jaundice because it poisoned oh, their livers. Um, and, and they uh, basically these these chemicals have been they're they're, um, they're xenobiotic, so essentially they're man-made, foreign to life made at huge scale unfortunately because you know been lots of wars over the last few few hundred years and um uh, and basically despite all of that um microorganisms have kind of adapted to break them down they actually grow on some of these things so my project looked initially at finding bacteria which happen to grow on some of these things we went to a, a, a firing range and we found lumps of this stuff lying around it's quite frightening but again lumps of TNT and other chemicals where they'd actually just killed Jeez. off all the life. We found bacteria. We found bacteria that grow on these things as nitrogen carbon sources. We um, then subsequently grew them in the lab. We then cloned the genes responsible. So we found uh, one particular gene which encoded a cytochrome P450. So the same enzymes which are in your livers that detoxify things. Actually, bacteria use a very similar thing to detoxify their environment as well. Um, and so I did a little bit of the protein biochemistry for that, but I was, what was even better and what was even really cooler was that I was part of a bigger team, which then took that gene and put it into plants. So we made transgenic plant lines, making a bacterial enzyme to detoxify all these kind of sites. So the idea being that because plants are physically bigger, they grow to much bigger biomass and they break this stuff down much quicker than bacteria where it would take several hundred years to kind of recover, but plants will do it much, much faster. And the even cooler thing was that when these things break down, plants, well, they, they release nitrite, which is a fertilizer. So actually we found that plants grew better, or these transgenic plants grew better in the presence of the pollution because they were breaking it down, making plant fertilizer and then growing faster. So that was that was kind of a really cool story, really. I mean, I was, again, a small cog in a much bigger wheel, but it, it kind of, um, it was really incredibly satisfying to see. I mean, I think it, it, I mean, it's still going on. The prof who, who runs it is, they've generated loads and loads of transgenic plant lines, trees, different grasses that so they can, the idea is that you you have these big manufacturing and firing ranges, you scatter this stuff everywhere. But but yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. And various other allied projects went on to solve crystal structures of this thing. I think all our faces, if everyone could see, our faces are like, our, our, our mouths are dropped. <laughs> but I think it, it, it was, you know, fast forward a few years, I think actually, so that, I suppose in some ways that was the sort of, maybe the high watermark. Um, I, it was, it was amazing being in a lab where you're riding that crest of that wave. Like when you're in a research, a busy research lab, we had 
so we had we were very well funded we were funded by the uk government by the us government we had different postdocs phd students it was amazing there was lots of stuff going on it was a great environment to work in and, and learn from um but i think you know as maybe as as other people have might might sort of recognize this image when when you're not at that crest that wave research particularly in laboratory research can be quite tough because you may not have the money you may not have the personnel you you know it might be difficult to buy reagents and chemicals and stuff so yeah that that was kind of the high point and there have been other points as well which were equally as satisfying but maybe not quite as didn't didn't achieve quite as much scientifically but just because you know funding can be quite uh, difficult to get and can, can sometimes be well it's always incredibly uh competitive to get um and then more recently some of my research has, has moved over to medical education stuff so um i'm more i mean so one of the things i'm interested in at the moment is is mentoring we have a, a last couple of years we have a big mentoring scheme at plymouth now whereby first years can be mentored now by a fifth year student and a fifth year in turn now gets a, an f1 f2 mentor as well so you can kind of, um, as a fifth year point of view, you get the, the chance to kind of work with a, a student just coming into university and you can kind of get a little experience of kind of helping someone adjust to university and, and kind of get into groups of medicine. And, and then yourself, hopefully, benefit from, um, you know, speaking to a, a practicing doctor as well. And, you know, research is now kind of going on to sort of evaluate all of that and just find out what people are covering and what they're doing. And um, so anyway, that, I think, I think, they're, I suppose, the two, the two things which I'm, I sort of look back on most fondly. I think one because it was just a really cool story, and the other one because it's genuinely useful. Like it, it genuinely fulfills a, a need, a kind of support, an academic need, and yeah, and it, it's also f sort of doing something and adding something that wasn't there before. And I think that's that's quite a satisfying to have and do. Yeah, definitely. I think um, something that a lot of listeners might be interested in was how did you first hear about those projects going on? You know, be it your PhD one or the one that the medical education one. How did you first hear about it and want to get involved? Um, yeah, so basically, you know, when I when I was an undergraduate, I I sort of decided I kind of had a rough idea about the sort the sort of thing I really wanted to do. I really liked the idea of of using microorganisms in a kind of useful environmental way and so i just literally spent a few days just googling just going to different universities different research groups and just seeing who was out there some people i had recommended to me by maybe one or two of the guys i was working with at the time but but um on the whole it was just i just immersed myself in that environment for a few days um I kind of read lots of papers I kind of got to know who was slightly more active and then I just started writing to people and I had the mindset of you know if they turn around and tell me to get lost fine they'll probably forget who I am you know within a few days um and you know that never happened I should say you know no one ever did that everyone was very thanks very much for getting in contact with me and it was either even if the answer was a no thank you it was a thanks for getting in touch it was it was never you know you never ever if you're proactive to get in contact no one's ever going to tell you to get lost basically um no it wasn't so i i basically joined a lab where the project was kind of already up and running i i i, I moved in to kind of um the, the guy actually the professor running it had a sort of he said i have a rough idea about what you can do but there are a few avenues you can potentially go um i think I think with all projects, it was quite nice in that there were a couple of quite risky things that he had in mind. So data that, he, that we wanted to collect, which if it didn't work, you know, that's that's okay. And then a couple of slightly more uh, safe options. So data using experiments and, and protocols, which we already had. It was just a case of getting in the lab and getting the data. And, that, and projects like that are quite good because you're always going to get data to write up. And then risky side of things, if if experiments that are a little bit of a why are you bothering doing that, it won't work. If they do work, then it's amazing. And it's it's kind of like a bit of a big breakthrough potentially. Um yeah, so that's that's the the, the the medical education side of thing, the mentoring side of thing, really it's about finding a niche, it's about finding a gap in the market. Um, you know, lots of medical schools, lots of dental schools, lots of veterinary schools have mentoring schemes. We just happen to not have one like that in Plymouth. But actually, 
you know, we have quite a, a close knit community and it was about trying to do something maybe a little bit different, maybe a little bit kind of uh, in keeping with all the other student support and all the other advice and stuff that, that yeah. people are given here. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it's just a, a it's something that runs in a, in a similar way and then we might be able to, you know, look into evaluate it in our own way as well, perhaps. Okay. Um, so you kind of, coming back to like environmental research, um, could different forms of like pollution lead to more pathogenic, like or dangerous pathogens, even yeah. though pollution itself doesn't harm us? Is that something you know? So, so yeah, so potentially. So I suppose it all depends on the type of pollution we're talking about, right? I mean, so you could talk about, um, you know, breakdown products of various um, herbicides and, and, you know, some from a kind of a agricultural point of view, certain antibiotics are used in agriculture. So we could be talking about, you know, obviously bacteria that respond to those probably will develop resistance mechanisms, which are then going to allow them to resist the action of, of other antibiotics. Um, we could... We could consider things like microplastics. So I know there's a couple of people at Plymouth interested in the way that microplastics could potentially be um, kind of essentially helping kind of AMR bacteria to, to spread. Maybe they could be a, an alternative way with which they kind of are essentially like a little vehicle to transmit from, from or move from one location to the other. I think the thing that I'm particularly interested in is, is that quite often these sort of maybe not necessarily resistance mechanisms but mechanisms by which bacteria can um kind of persist and, and tolerate levels of pollution often there are quite a lot of overlaps with antibiotics so when we think about biocides when we think about other um, chemical disinfectants for example they may not necessarily be clinically useful what they might be able to do is allow bacteria to uh, generate kind of variants of them which are just better at detoxifying the environment and that could in turn have implications clinically they're not necessarily going to be maybe affecting virulence but they could certainly be a bit more tough to to treat uh, and, and there are different ways with which that happens i mean different bacteria for example um uh, so bacteria have the ability in some cases to delete genes required for dna repair so they generate these hypermutator strains some other organisms will generate what's called an SOS response. So when they're growing in a community, they, they actually uh, signal to cells around them to start to kind of mutate faster. And the idea is nature's kind of generating diversity in a, in a population that might otherwise be quite clonal. Um, so it, it's, you know, when, when you have bacteria growing in a, in a sort of homogenous community, it's nature building in um, uh, diversity into that population, basically. So yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of my take. I mean, it, it's um, but like I said, I think you know, environmental use of of these different things, uh, it, it, environmental use of antibiotics is is something which undoubtedly will have uh, you know clinical applications. Yeah. So is there a, is there a do you know if there's a correlation between microplastics and resistant bacteria? Would that be so? The more microplastics there are, yeah. I don't know. I think this is this is again something that I think people are sort of looking at. So bacteria are very good at adhering to different surfaces, man-made, you know, uh, different body parts, you know, bone, plastic, metal, you name it. Um, and I think it's it, you know, as we're as we're kind of thinking about microplastics being found in a range of different environments, it's uh, kind of natural to start thinking about well, what's attached to those microplastics. Um, and if particularly you've got a microplastic that's you know originated from a human source or you know a human sort of maybe let's say cosmetic or whatever so it come into contact with human skin and it's been washed away maybe it stands to reason that actually there are human pathogens stuck to those things or environmental pathogens stuck to those things which are making their way back so it's i don't know something like, i don't i don't know i must admit what, what the latest is with that I, I i'd love to say more but i'm afraid when it comes to all that sort of environmental biotech stuff i'm, I'm tiny bit out of the loop because when we, i was um doing a bit of reading on this and um from a veterinary perspective <laughs> sorry but there were a few cases of like um bacterial resistant organisms found in the galapagos islands i think <laughs> there were in the galapagos um sort of like native wildlife and obviously this galapagos island it, it was un uninhabited and the only 
way that it would have got there would have been from human this paper was saying it was arguing that it was from humans visiting the island through tourism and things so i suppose maybe the presence of micro uh, micro just listening to what you were saying there maybe the presence of microplastics from yeah the tourism industry could have contributed i suppose to this outbreak of bacteria and endangered species so i guess it's a conservation issue as well and actually the same has been true of you know visitors to antarctica uh, and actually, yeah. when you when you start looking at yeah. drug resistant genes, you know you start to see AMR genes popping up in all sorts of crazy places. You know, pristine Arctic environments and uncontacted Amazonian tribes that have you know uh, resistance genes for you know carbapenems and stuff. And and you and you start to think about well, are they naturally occurring, or is that just the consequence of horizontal gene transfer pushing a gene from you know a country where you've got these drugs in use and it's just now circulated worldwide. It's it's kind of a really, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating one, a kind of difficult one in some, some cases to answer. But yeah, it, it's true. Again, it kind of shows our sort of impact, um, you know, how much of an impact we've had, uh, you know, in the mass production of these things, but also then how nature has adapted to them. Yeah, uh, but so if you were to kind of talk a bit more about the medical education research that you're currently involved in. Um, so you said that you are currently involved in a mentoring program between year fives, F1s, and then year fives and year ones. Am I right to say that? Um, so what currently have has what has research shown so far? Like what methods seem to be effective, what don't seem to work, and like has has there kind of reasons been for why? Yeah, I mean uh, to be honest, um, yes. yes, thanks. It's it's a good question. I mean these are um, to some degree, this has all been kind of held back by my own inexperience in these areas. So I, I kind of use these sort of projects as a way of skilling up in these kind of different areas. So qualitative research methods, for example, never done that before. Uh, now I'm kind of, you know, planning on running these semi-structured interviews with first and fifth years. Um, a few years ago, if, you, if you'd spoken to me, you prior to coming to you'd asked me about qualitative research and said it was about interviewing people and drawing out themes, I would have said, is that really research? But I mean, you know, but then you, you kind of then realise that actually it absolutely is research and it's actually in some cases a lot more powerful than the quantitative stuff that I was, I was used to getting. Um, yeah, I mean, so the things coming out of it, what have, we, what have we been looking at? So initially we've been kind of looking at basically what are the kind of themes that have been coming out, what have first years been getting out of it? And what fifth year has been getting out of it? So what particular topics have first year has been requesting help with? And does that reflect maybe areas in the curriculum which we don't give a lot of time to? Because we sometimes, from an academic point of view, you sort of forget what it's like to kind of sometimes grapple with and understand these topics to start with. You know, uh, sometimes you, you forget that, you know, we're not always necessarily uh, typical learners of various topics that sometimes we gloss over things and go oh yeah you must understand that when actually maybe people don't because they may not have covered it at a level or maybe it's just a bit of a harder thing to get your head around um and then from the fifth year point of view just kind of interested to hear what they've been doing the the the, the scheme runs in a fairly loose way we, we don't really tell fifth years really what to do we, there are certain things we ask them to not do so you know, overstep the mark with respect to pastoral issues. We ask them to signpost on to things and so on, but they've got pretty much freedom to do what they want. And so it's it's been quite interesting to see how they've actually been um, using them and, and what they've been covering with their with their little groups of students. Um, and then, you know, so actually what we have at the moment is for this academic year, the scheme's expanded and I'm co-supervising a master's student actually at the moment. So we have an integrated medical student who's actually now uh, getting the ethics to do the the interviews, to sit down with people and actually kind of pull out some of those themes. Um, and what we're really hoping is that we'll actually kind of get a bit of an insight into, you know, again, are there areas that we can do from a curriculum point of view to, to beef up in terms of support? Or is it other areas which are neglected or are there areas that we do too much? Um, and that actually thinking about it from the student point of view, we'll kind of get some really powerful insights that way as well. Um, yeah, and then, of course, what, what do fifth years get? So when they have an F1, F2 mentor, what are they getting out of it? Are they actually engaging with that? Are they getting tips on, you know, academic fellowship uh, program applications? Are they getting tips on the day-to-day running of the job, doctoring in the era of COVID? Are they, 
you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And, and I think, again, it, it might just give us insight into what we can do to better support fifth years, um, but also the power of these things anyway. I mean, you know, you could make an argument of saying there's only so much we can do in a curriculum like dentistry, veterinary science, biomedicine, medicine, whatever. And to what degree, if we just let people just get on with it and do their own thing, are they just going to organically set up these sort of things and kind of learn from each other? Again, I mean, and everyone's the same. I learned a lot from students when I was when I was a student myself, and and I think that's that's right, and that's kind of always the way it's going to be. So, yeah, it's just about kind of doing what we can to preserve a bit of space and, and kind of letting people do that. But then from a research angle, capturing some of that information as well. No, that's that's incredible, especially. I mean, I think, like you said, the qualitative versus kind of quantitative research um, kind of methodology is quite different, and you've obviously had to like you know, learn a very different skill base. And I think lots of people, I think the first, when you hear research, their first idea is typically in a lab and you're doing, you know, you're working with test tubes and that's it. And that's where people can understand and research stops. And I think it's, it's yeah, it's important yeah. for people to understand that there's so much out there and there's so much that you can do. I think that's it. I think I think it's it's important to kind of move away. From, it's not just about wearing a lab coat and boiling test tubes. You know, it, it's it's all sorts of different angles. Uh, and I think it just takes time sometimes just just to kind of get exposed to that kind of stuff and, and actually think to yourself, yeah, quite like the sound of that. Have you found that COVID has impacted your results? And like, was it over a, like a period so you could see pre-COVID results versus COVID results? So we've we've only been running it for the last two or three years and um yeah we we probably have i mean i think it it was quite interesting because um we have students at different localities so we have students yeah. based in plymouth and also in torbay so we saw that quite a lot of people used to use the kind of mentoring scheme just in a fairly informal whatsapp chat just to have someone nice that you can talk to and have an occasional conversation with over the phone and so i think in that way it hasn't impacted that much um I think what it has done, though, is it's it's kind of impacted on the kind of face-to-face teaching that I think some of the fifth years ran. So they were very good at um, uh, running lots of kind of bespoke clinical skills teaching, just kind of giving an opportunity just for first years to kind of practice this stuff. Um, but yeah, they've. I think from from what we're we're kind of getting, um, that there have been some groups that seem to have fizzled out as they did last year and there have been some groups that um that that where it's still kind of very much gone on and i think lots of people have, have benefited from it i think you know as we have had to do with the curriculum and, and as every, every institution has done everyone's kind of adapted to it and i think it's still kind of going ahead in fact actually if anything what will be really interesting to will be to see how people have adapted what have students used to stay in touch with each other because i think sometimes we can learn a huge amount about the kind of technology platforms that you guys use to to communicate and interact with each other and and probably there are things that you you do which you just think are obvious because why would everyone want to use this particular platform or whatever which actually we can look at and go yeah that makes a lot of sense why are we not doing that (laughs) let's do it no i completely like agree because i'm actually a mentor at cardiff for first years and so the way I've, I've had to interact with students from face to face has definitely been more technological based and especially now being stuck in the middle of Wrexham, <laughs> I'm having to use like WhatsApp and Zoom. Mm-hmm. So it you have to actually put an effort in to see them because often I think we rely on a lot of social interaction with mental groups based on whether you see them passing in the library, be it. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I am both a mentee and a mentor. <laughs> So mentee from F1 students this year. And I was also, I think, oldest, like, you know, um, I think older years in terms of like still undergrad med students. And I found that there was, there was a difference in like the content and the way they taught. Um, just in general, um, I think nothing, nothing personal, like uh, attached to the actual person, more just experience. Because as an F1, I felt that their teaching was a lot more practical. Um, you know, because they have seen it and they, it's more related to, I saw this case the other day. This is how we did it. These are what the guidelines are. And it's very, I just thought it was really interesting as to like the kind of different modes of teaching I've received. So I think I'm really, really intrigued to see what the kind of the interviews uh, and the research kind of brings out. So that'll be something 
I'll definitely keep an eye out. No, I think I think well, I, I, and I think what what will, what will be useful will be to then feed that forward as well. So future years we can we can kind of learn lessons from that. Um, and it's also about working with the support mechanisms that are already there. So you know, um, you know, uh, in Plymouth, as you know, Natasha, in, in lots of other places, you know, students have organised themselves into different societies and different groups. And so what we offer, um, you know, with the sort of medical school badge on it, how does that fit alongside everything else that's going on? And what can we do to kind of work together? And, and you know, looking into research into into you know the pros and cons of all those those sorts of things you know when when you, you kind of get the medical school involved and you get that sort of official badge it kind of lends a certain something to it but also does it maybe take away from a little bit of the informality of, of some of these things i don't know so it will be interesting to kind of pick up on some of those themes definitely yeah the, the other thing i mean it's a kind of another, another allied project but another project that we're that we're just kicking off for this year which is being run by led by another master student is is a time usage project so we're kind of asking students to fill out basically a time tracker so to, to look how they spend their time over the course of a week or two week period um to give us insights into when do people study and what kind of other things are you doing in your time again because you know it's been it's been a long time since i was a student but actually when you actually look at the hours of the day how much time do you have in amongst everything else for studying medicine, dentistry, veterinary science, or whatever. And actually, I think sometimes we as staff overestimate how much time you actually have. So we have an interesting project where we're asking staff to fill it out and students to fill it out, and then we're going to compare. And yeah, my, my hypothesis is that I think staff are going to probably think you spend your time so for example maybe more time preparing for sessions and less time consolidating sessions i suspect it'll be interesting to see how much time people spend at a weekend working um we we are supposedly supposed to have wednesday afternoon free for sport and other activities is that actually the case what about other kind of habits and so on there are kind of like with every methodology there are pros and cons we might get a load of students telling us what we want to hear rather than the realities but it could be, again, that could be another one to, to kind of think a little bit about. And that one will be interesting to see how and where COVID has impacted on kind of day-to-day -day time use. So another another place where actually we can do a mixed methods results and, and, and kind of survey looking at, you know, quantitative, how much study time do you have? But also let's sit down with somebody and say, well, okay, you've spent six hours in the library here. Was it actually that effective? What did you do? Uh, and you can't really capture that very easily from a survey, as you can, but it's it's maybe you might get slightly different things and more rich data from actually sitting down with somebody and doing an interview. Like six hours in the library, we've all done that, I've done that, and I've always, I've often come away thinking, oh, that wasn't as effective as I wanted to be, I wasn't as productive as I wanted to be. Then there are the days where, I don't know, for whatever reason, it clicked and I got a lot of work done. So it'd be interesting just, I think from interview, like you said, you can only kind of drag or like you know get those themes out when you're actually speaking to someone yeah no, that's true yeah i think that um i completely agree i think that'll be a really interesting discussion to have because i think that there's a lot of pressure now um for students to to have to do something with their time all the time to have to account for every single second or every hour of every day you have to be doing something whether that's studying being in lectures being in clinics being on placement um, playing sport on a Wednesday afternoon and and things like that so um, like spending six hours in the library I suppose you can kind of kid yourself well I've spent I've accounted for that mm. six hours I've been studying but actually is that as effective as whether you just maybe done two hours of studying and had the other four to chill or like take I don't know take some time and there's all these sort of like time tracking apps and um like I've been using toggle to track my time and to see how long I spend studying and filling out your little schedule for the day um so yeah I think I think it would definitely be interesting to see what people do and whether they think it is effective um so yeah I suppose what it all comes down to though is again these are you know it's about asking questions and it's just about the kind of like I wonder what, and then, you know, and then you follow it on from there. It might be that, you know, it might be that it's actually a bit of a mess. We don't really know. It's all, you know, the data is a bit confusing, but 
it at least kind of allows us to start having these kind of conversations and that even if it turns out that actually I'll still be able to kind of publish something meaningful at the end of it all um, and, and or kind of have a present presentation at a conference and, and kind of talk to other medical schools about also how they're doing similar things, you know, so it's, it's about kind of doing this kind of thing about kind of testing an idea if it works brilliant if it doesn't well let's reflect on it let's try to plan again and let's refine methods and, and move on to the next related thing hopefully i guess that that puts me onto a point actually do, do medical schools talk to each other about research they're conducting um and is it quite an open line of communication with sharing data <sighs> Um, yes, they do. Uh, so, you know, conferences are a good chance to kind of meet people from other institutions and you can kind of calibrate your work and see what other people and, and other, see what other institutions are doing. Uh, and I think that's always a good research thing to do anyway. You know, get out there, see what's going on when you've collected some data. How does it match with what other people are doing when they're presenting stuff? You can kind of think to yourself, have we done that? We've done something similar to that. Or maybe maybe they're presenting something and you're sat there going, well, I've done a lot more than this. I should be really, you know, looking to do something with all the stuff I've collected. Yeah, it can sometimes be, you'd like to think that there's um, medical schools, veterinary schools, dental schools are quite altruistic and it's all about kind of forging things ahead. But of course, people then have their own ambitions and things they want to do and achieve and so sometimes you know you can have people that are a little bit coy about what they're sharing and uh particularly you know if you're kind of looking to publish something because there's nothing there's there's no worse feeling than being scooped on data you know you know you you collected some stuff you talked to somebody or you know you, you sort of you know in a fit of enthusiasm you sort of let slip a few things and before you know it you know someone's gone ahead and published something very similar i mean a lot of people have been there you know i i, I must admit it's not happened I, I don't, i'm not aware of it happening it's certainly not happened to me in medical education but but um yeah it's it's something that i suppose sometimes people can be a little bit coy about but but no we, but we do and you know I, and i you know certainly from in the southwest you know we, we're still you know, I still still in contact with a few people at University of Exeter, for example. So, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's just a case of just getting to conferences and, and just meeting people, but always very happy to collaborate and, and share ideas. Absolutely. Yeah, I think definitely over the years going through med school, I've noticed that networking is just as important as the actual research, knowing the right people to talk to, putting yourself out there. Um, yeah. I, I would, yeah, I'd completely agree. I think sometimes... You know, I think looking back on it, that's something that I must admit I did probably quite well on. You know, I, I would talk to people as a PhD student. Basically, how I got a, how I got a postdoc job was just because I, I chatted to somebody and out of, out of nowhere, I got an email saying, hi, James, hey, you're looking for a job. I've got this thing coming available. Do you fancy doing it? Um, so, you know, you, you never quite know. And, and I think it's never you, when, when you talk to people, you never quite know what opportunity is around the corner. You never quite know when you're going to need to reach out to somebody for a bit of advice or a reference or maybe a protocol or you want to run an idea past them. And, and it's just nice to be able to have that kind of um, that, that wider perspective. Again, it, it's very easy to get I mean, when you're thinking about research, very easy to get kind of wrapped up in your own thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think networking and, and kind of getting out there is 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 absolutely it's, it's such a good thing to to, be able to do. Yeah. No, I agree. It's it's incredible to kind of you just talk to that one person and suddenly you're somewhere else and you don't realize how you reached point A to point B. And it's yeah, it's surprising sometimes how that happens. And I feel like um, with networking, um, especially, I think it, it's somehow. It helps reduce that whole kind of you know, this competitiveness to be the first to publish, be the first to do this, and sometimes that can be quite, um, I don't know, harmful to kind of the research. Yeah, I it, it's um, I, I never found this as a bioscience student, but I have witnessed it a lot within medicine. It's it's something that can sometimes be, um, I think, particularly in COVID, and, and I, you know, from a pastoral point of view, I see so many students struggling at the moment. And to have one more thing on top of all the things you've got to do, it's, oh, I've got to publish, I've got to do research, I've got to do all this sort of stuff. And I think actually sometimes networking and talking to other people puts things in perspective. 
that you know when it comes to research you're probably your first paper ain't going to be nature paper you're probably not going to get a first publication in science you know you're probably better thinking about search and and thinking about it all in terms of outputs rather than publications you know so you know if you know if you get a chance to post a presentation that's fantastic you get the chance to present orally at a conference that's amazing if you get you know if you have the chance to think about inspire journal or british student doctor journal or others you know just the process of going through writing an article writing a cover letter going through all of that it, that's the stuff that actually matters because you know if you're going in expecting i've got to spend three years in a laboratory it ain't gonna happen you know you, you need to be a phd student to be doing that so i think it's also a little bit about appreciating that there's only so much you can do in the limited time you've got and it's it's about kind of thinking about research and outputs in slightly different ways i guess uh, i think that's that's the kind of thing I, I think if i could think if i could speak to medical students more about it that's how i would get them to think about or, or even think about like you know sometimes uh you can write a letter to a to an editor you know if you you know for, for example let's say you read something in a medical education journal and you wanted to write put a medical student spin on something where well, you can write a letter in reply and actually although it's you're not generating new data as such you are providing a medical student perspective on something that actually still you're still providing a cover letter you're still going through that process and it technically counts as a publication so there are just kind of alternative ways with which you can you can do all these things but but yeah, you're kind of playing the long game. I was saying you don't have to kind of do everything overnight immediately. Like it takes time to to build up all these skills and and to get these experiences. That's something that I've sort of been thinking about lately. Is that I sort of feel that I'm almost running out of time before graduation and to applying to these PhDs and these like research positions. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a second. Once I'm graduated and working in clinical practice, it's going to be much harder for me to get research experience in the same way that I can when I'm at university and I, you can sort of take advantage of being able to pop down to the lab and, and have a go and look at this data and, and things. So um, I think, yeah, that's definitely an important point, understanding that you don't have to do everything mm. immediately. I don't have to have three published papers before I graduate. <laughs> it's probably just, uh, yeah, okay to just get as much experience as possible. Do you have any sort of advice for people wanting to get research experience um, especially now during COVID without necessarily being able to help yeah, out. Yeah, I think, like I said, it's, it's about being flexible and about being realistic at the moment. You, it's, it, as you say, if you're determined to do laboratory science, it might be that at the moment, things you can be doing might be contributing to literature reviews and the kind of behind the scenes stuff. I mean, that, by the way, is crucial. It's, it's not a, you know, a, a, a sort of a minor point, you know, doing the kind of laying the groundwork and, and kind of thinking things through and, and doing all that sort of planning is as important as going into the lab and, and using a pipette and setting up your experiments and all that kind of stuff. I think be, like I said, be flexible about what we actually mean by research. So again, I, I've given an example of medical education research. I, I haven't been in a, in a laboratory in a couple of years, you know, so I, I, and yet I, I'm still able to generate new ideas new data hypotheses and, and so on um and actually if i can just say i'm finding it a lot more fulfilling in lots of ways than i'm um, kind of watching you know a centrifuge were around and watching proteins precipitate out of solution and coming in late at night and watching bacteria that don't grow and i can go on um so sometimes people, particularly at universities, might you might hear the word scholarship used. So sometimes people are increasingly employed on education and scholarship contracts. So that doesn't necessarily mean just research, but they may still be research active. And, and I think it might be a case of being proactive and um, maybe contacting people who might happen to have a little project going. Um, there are lots of little pots of money around summer studentships, um, maybe little bits of university pump climbing money, which you're not necessarily always aware of, but sometimes people that run labs, principal investigators, lecturers, professors, they sort of may not always have the time to advertise for things. And what they may rely on is people actually approaching them saying, I'm interested in your research, interested in getting a month or two of, of, of experience. Do you happen to have any room in your laboratory or if someone's not lab active what other things do they have going on are there other things in terms of helping to prepare ethics or helping to prepare yeah the, the, the kind of literature stuff or helping the kind of maybe more in the kind of methodology 
so so I think there are lots of things you can do. I think it's just really about moving away from maybe a fixed image of of like you know boiling test tubes and and all that kind of lab based research and thinking about things a bit more broadly. And actually, if you start doing that, you might start to think to yourself, well, what am I actually interested in? Um, and if you're not really interested in the lab stuff side of things, that's absolutely fine. There's heaps of other research you can get involved in. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you. Um, I also wanted to ask what your sort of top tips were for applying for PhDs. I know there's probably going to be lots of people listening who are thinking about applying for PhDs and not really sure how to go about doing it and i know you said about networking would you sort of say yeah, that that's i think so i mean so things as possible i think the thing i'd recommend is ironically i'd say do your research um <laughs> before you start thinking about research what i mean is think carefully about what does a phd actually involve and entail and is that what you want to do because there are lots of other research qualifications you can get you can do an md or a masters or a postgraduate certificate you know like a phd is just one of the many options and routes that you can do um so that's the that's the first thing and then i suppose linked to that be clear with what you know just just Ask yourself, is that actually what I want to do with my life? Um, if you go into it thinking, yeah, might as well, or everyone else seems to be doing it, I might as well do it, then you're kind of, uh, I'm not sure that's always a healthier pos position because when the going gets tough, you're likely to turn around and go, I forget this, I'm running up of this. I think the key thing for me, it's all about finding a supervisor. The relationship with the supervisor is really key because your supervisor isn't just someone to you know, raise money for the lab. They're your mentor, your your advisor. They're there to be a critical friend. They're there to look out for you. In some cases, they're there to teach you and train you on various things. And and that's really important. And I, and I suppose linked to that as well is is the wider group and the and the culture and the environment you're going to be working in. So again, if you're joining a group which is really active and buzzy, and there's other people there, and you're going to be supervised by a couple of different people. That's great because you're going to be in that environment and you'll learn more from that environment than you will from any series of lectures or whatever. You know, it, it's being immersed in that research active world and you'll kind of learn from the mistakes and the advice of, of people around you. Um, like I said, I think, you know, thinking in terms of outputs and, and looking to see if, you know, what have people published? What kind of journals have they gone for? What kind of methods are they using? What does the future hold? Are they publishing frequently or is it once every 10 years? And, and what's the quality of the stuff that they're going for? So so these are the kind of things you can be doing and, and looking at beforehand. Um, I think, you know, other things like, are you going to be on your own? Are you going to be joining with other students? Again, so you've got a little bit of that sort of camaraderie and, and thinking before. And as you get closer to the time, Learn how to put a CV together. Learn how to do an interview. Sell yourself. I mean, these are things which, you know, probably bioscience students may well have lots of employability kind of tutorials and seminars. But I don't think we don't do anything like that from a medicine point of view. I don't think medicine students are ever taught how to put together a CV. Partly because maybe you don't ever need to. But actually, from an academic point of view, you want a CV that kind of says more than just, I went to this medical school. That's the end of my CV. You know, you want something which talks about, well, these are my research interests and this is the kind of expertise I've got maybe, or these are the sort of skills I've already acquired, or these are the little posters or projects I've involved in along the way. And, and so something that highlights what you've got and maybe what you can contribute. Uh, and, you know, you've all got tons that you can contribute. I think sometimes people don't always appreciate all these things you, you learn, communication skills, your ability to work different data, your ability to pick up uh you know manual dexterity type skills quite quickly and all of that you know uh, uh, your ability to kind of be punctual and turn up for time and do do stuff routinely you know that's the that kind of discipline that's the stuff that that really matters and again it sounds all really obvious but actually it's not until you actually start to spell it out someone doesn't know that stuff and just looking at the fact that you went to a medical school or dental school or whatever yeah i was going to ask about that actually because from a veterinary um, perspective, I guess. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, our, uh, from your experience working in sort of medical labs and medical schools, um, personally, I'm quite interested in working in that sort of environment rather than a more veterinary focused um, 
laboratory I'm very interested in microbiology and novel drug development and all that sort of thing are people in your experience in biomedical labs quite receptive to having vets on board if there was anyone listening who was also interested in that um no I think I think you know mostly medical orientated when you think about the sort of challenges that we have at the moment in society you know covid is a classic example of it's basically a zoonotic disease isn't it and we we can't increasingly think about these things in isolation and so much bioscience now is we talk about translational science we talk about the fact that it's not just about doing stuff in a you know in a purely laboratory setting a lot of it now needs to have application and impact and and thinking about how is this going to benefit wider society of course there is always going to be a place for kind of basic sciences blue sky thinking and so on but but yeah absolutely and and i think the thing to say is that you you bring a certain other perspective that the you know bioscience students won't always have we had um in you know previous lab i worked and we would have interclating medical students come through it and they've never picked up a pet before in their life but they learn quite quickly because you're you're used to learning clinical skills quite quickly you're used to doing that kind of stuff but what they were able to bring was the clinical side of things which you know i didn't have a clue about so i worked briefly in a, well i worked for a few years in a lab looking at uh nysteria meningitis you know I'd, I'd never seen someone with meningitis before i couldn't take a patient history i could grow the thing on a petri dish but I couldn't tell you anything about which drug do you use to treat it or that kind of clinical side. So you're kind of bringing something in from a different world, you know, and you're giving that, you know, thinking about how, you know, the lab works, you're bringing a very different perspective. Sometimes people that come in with different outside perspectives bring new ideas. And and, and that's, you know, when, when you start getting people together that kind of say, well, why are we doing things this way? And I don't see how this can translate through to the to the veterinary, you know, you know, to, to the to vet, vet clinic, or I can see problems with this further down the line. That's the kind of voice that's really required. So I, I wouldn't get too worried, to be honest, because I think these sort of skills can be learned. It's the motivation. It's the kind of ability to work in a team. It's the ability to pick up skills. It's the ability to kind of show a little bit of, um, you know, when the going gets tough, that you've got a little bit of determination to kind of get get it through and you're motivated to do it. I think they're the things that the people are, uh, you know, are, are kind of looking for. Not necessarily massive list of these are all the technical things I can already do because, you know, all these PhDs and so on, they are training programs. They are basically there for you to, to learn how to do all this the, the, normally the first year is to be on you know, set aside for doing this kind of stuff my whole first year was a complete disaster zone it was a train wreck of just failed experiment after waste of time experiment and i look back on it and think i could have just burnt my lab books but actually do you know what i learned a lot from doing all those you know it was a bit painful waste of time but i but i did learn a lot from that and i, I think the same is true for a lot of people Yeah, because I, I know that from doing a bit of research on Google, um, quite a few of these sort of uh, clinical PhD programs are only open to medical students and they don't really um, welcome applications from veterinary students, which I think is quite sad. So it's quite reassuring to hear that um, there are people that do want, a, you know, like a fresh perspective. I do genuinely think that, you know, COVID will 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 see in it, you know, will reboot certain other areas so i think you know from a personal point of view i think we'll see um, you know a, a refocus on vaccines and vaccine development maybe diagnostics certainly you know the, the way with which uh, human pathogens and animal pathogens kind of cross over um you know i think amr is another classic example of that you know and and the kind of uh, human pathogens, animal pathogens, uh, sharing genetic information and, and all the rest of it. You know, I think, again, I, I think that's that's another example of where, you know, for any veterinary students listening, you know, I think that keep keep going, basically, because you'll have things to offer. Um, things like the Inspire uh, Journal, podcast, you know, I think the, these are the things that, uh, you know, people want to do a taste of, of research. You'll get, I, I wish I had done something like this as a, as a student. I, I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm here, but I think in terms of getting an insight into the whole process of doing research and, and just kind of publishing something in a safe way, you know, like, you, you know, it, it's, it's such a valuable learning experience. No, I mean, I think I would say, you know, if anyone 
uh you know feel free if anyone wants to get in touch feel free and and um uh you know i can't always re- guarantee a particularly speedy response but you'll always get a response at some stage but um but yeah i do have a i do have a yeah somewhere on youtube there is a, a few antibiotics videos lurking around so uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Edwards. It was a pleasure having you. We have discussed quite a lot, and I particularly value all your kind of like tips and the advice regarding getting into research. Um, so thank, thank you so very much for inviting me on. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Edwards' journey from biomedical science to medical lecturer was certainly inspiring for us. I was, we also had some very interesting discussions in how microorganisms responded to environmental pollutants and its role in the detoxification of the environment. We discussed the different types of research methods, such as qualitative and quantitative research, and the importance of both. Never being afraid to learn and always seeking out opportunities is something that uh, resonated with me. You can find Dr. Edwards at his Facebook page, uh, Microbiology of Peninsula, and, the, and his YouTube page, which will be linked in the show notes below. If you want to get in touch, please email us at inspirejournalpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our social media. We've been Ellie, Natasha and Halima bringing you another episode of the Inspire podcast. Please like or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Inspire Journal Podcast and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Spotify or any other podcasting platform. Don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring your co- you content that you love. We're really passionate about research and we'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please share with your friends and on social media. The Inspire podcast is brought to you by the Inspire Student Journal. You can visit the journal's website at www.inspirestudentjournal.co.uk to find out more. See you next time. We're students and we're all still learning, so we appreciate any comments, feedback or error corrections in relation to the topics discussed. All research presented is correct at the time of recording. Any medical information provided does not constitute official medical advice. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be experiencing. Views expressed in the Inspired Journal podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Inspired Student Journal or of the institutions we are attached to.